On April 12, 1995, deep-sea salvage expert Paul Tidwell and his crew set out across the open ocean in search for a treasure that had been missing for over five decades. Years earlier, in the National Archives of Washington, D.C., Tidwell had uncovered declassified Japanese naval messages from World War II. Through thousands of pages of documents, a single sentence stood out. Quote, The I-52 is carrying two tons of gold. End quote. Tidwell surmised the location of the sunken Japanese submarine I-52 in the Atlantic Ocean between Barbados and Cape Verde. His crew sailed for two weeks with no luck finding such a vessel. It was only when they set out west of their search vector that an image finally appeared on their sonar, the unmistakable shape of a submarine. Finding the legendary Japanese submarine I-52 was the easy part. Salvaging a 2,500-ton vessel from the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean was an entirely different story. Theories varied as to what was actually inside the ship, from material to build an atomic bomb to a peace proposal meant for the Allies. But how would explorers reach this treasure? What was truly inside the Japanese I-52 submarine? Was there really $20 million worth of gold 12,000 feet at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean? And if not, where could it have gone? Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, the ParCast Network show where we search for everything missing. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find previous episodes, as well as ParCast's other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. Some of you have been asking how you can support Gone. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. Today, we're looking into the possible treasure inside the Japanese I-52 submarine, which sunk in 1944. The mystery isn't the location of the submarine. As mentioned earlier, Paul Tidwell and his crew located the sub in 1995. The question is, what type of treasure lies inside the I-52 submarine? Before we continue, we'd like to point out the three different treasures suspected to be inside the I-52. The most popular and most likely belief is that it holds two tons of gold, valued at $20 million. Another theory suggests that the vessel's mission was to receive material to build a radiological weapon to be used against the United States. The third theory is that the sub contained a peace proposal to the Allied forces. To uncover the I-52's mysteries, we don't have to go to the bottom of the ocean. Instead... We have to go back in time, back seven decades to when Japan first joined World War II. In late 1937, Japan and China were engaged in the Second Sino-Japanese War. 
Japan was a rapidly modernizing nation and was invading and looting its enemies on the Asian mainland in order to expand its dominance of the region. For both countries, the war served as a bloody prelude to World War II, which was gearing up in Europe at the same time. The extreme violence of this particular conflict was exemplified by what is now referred to as the Rape of Nanking. On December 13, 1937, Japanese forces captured the Chinese city of Nanking. The Japanese army carried out mass killings and sexual assaults of Chinese citizens. Japan's actions in Nanking shocked the world and put the Allied nations on edge. Japan continued its assault on the Chinese mainland, and within three years, Japanese forces were closing in on Singapore and the Philippines, where the United States and Great Britain had troops stationed. The country's invasion of the Asian mainland was spurred by its need for resources. Japan required steel and rubber if it wanted to expand, and now the U.S. and the other Western powers were in its way. In order to take on the West, Japan would need allies. On September 27, 1940, Japan joined Germany and Italy with the Tripartite Pact. The Tripartite Pact was an agreement between Japan, Germany, and Italy to aid each other in case any of them were attacked by powers not involved in their respective wars. At this point, the United States had not yet entered World War II, but it had publicly condemned Japan for its invasion of China and placed embargoes on Japanese exports. This devastated Japan's import economy. When President Roosevelt froze Japanese assets in the United States in 1941, Japan lost 88% of its imported oil. German military historian Dennis Showalter, in his coverage of the Pacific War, states, quote, Japan could no longer clothe or feed its expanding population from its own resources, end quote. December 7. 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. 2008 Navy, 218 Army, 109 American Marine soldiers, and 68 civilians lost their lives during the attack on Pearl Harbor. In total, 2,403 Americans died. The attack on Pearl Harbor ushered the United States into the Second World War. America's forces mobilized in the European and Pacific theaters. It was in the Pacific Theater, specifically the Pacific Ocean, where we must go to uncover the mysterious treasures within the Japanese I-52 submarine. The I-52 submarine was part of the Japanese Yanagi missions. The tripartite pact between Japan, Germany, and Italy united these three nations against the combined military and economic might of the Allied powers. The Inagi missions were an amendment of this pact that allowed Japan to exchange special materials and goods with other Axis powers. An early example of such an exchange occurred in 1941. In his book, Germany's Last Mission to Japan, author Joseph Mark Scalia writes, quote, during the first five months of 1941, Germany had received 
212,366 metric tons of commodities via the Trans-Siberian Railroad, while in return, Japan had received heavy machinery, armor plating, vehicles, and even aircraft, end quote. Earlier Yanagi missions used surface ships, usually blockade runners. These ships were designed to do exactly what their name implies, get past naval blockades of enemy ships. These surface runners were able to carry resources valuable to the Axis powers in bulk. An intelligence report from 1943 detailing a summary of German blockade runner activity shows that the loss of just six runners cost Germany, quote, 25,500 tons of rubber, 15,300 tons of whale oil, fish oil, vegetable oil and gallnuts, 4,000 tons of tin, 450 tons of tungsten, and about 600 tons of miscellaneous cargo, including rice, tea, quinine, and opium." End quote. The same report shows that Germany was still able to successfully claim 4,000 tons of rubber that year from only one shipload. To put this in perspective, to make a Sherman tank, you need about a half ton of rubber. The Japanese blockade runners would masquerade as United Nations ships or neutral vessels, even going as far as labeling dummy cargo, General Motors, New York. It seems like a simple ruse, but for a time, it was effective. These early missions were successful. Needless to say, a successful supply run was of vital importance to the Axis powers. But by 1942, the Inagi missions were having troubles. The Japanese Navy only changed their codes every three to six months. Allied forces were often able to crack these codes long before they were changed. By decoding these messages, the Allied navies were able to track, intercept, and destroy or capture the Japanese vessels. Because of this, the Japanese forces were barely using surface ships for these kinds of missions by 1943. You'd think they would have just changed their codes more often. Well, when you have a war to fight, you can lose your common sense every now and then. Japan and the other Axis powers still needed a way to transport resources to one another through the Allied blockades. Submarines offered an alternate means to transport these goods. Submarines had minimal artillery and were much slower than blockade runners. But they were able to travel longer distances while remaining deep underwater, meaning they could avoid their enemies by taking longer, less likely routes to their ultimate destinations. Richard N. Billings, historian author of Battleground Atlantic, states, quote, the 2,500-ton I-52 was an enticing target, 357 feet in length and able to cruise on the surface at no better than 16 knots because her designers had traded horsepower for a 21,000-mile cruising range. So with or without valuable cargo, the I-52 was a likely target." End quote. The Japanese Navy used numerous tactics to avoid capture, including using decoy submarines and delaying ship movement to confuse Allied intelligence. One of the main advantages of submarines was the ability for mid-ocean cargo transfer. A U.S. intelligence report from June 2, 1943, states that, quote, U-boats, German submarines, would not be required to make the full 16,000-mile trip to the Far East, but instead meet with Japanese surface runners in African waters, end quote. 
The arrangement between the Axis powers would normally have several German submarines rendezvous with a single surface runner on the open ocean. These German U-boats exchanged weapons, chemicals, and soldiers for tungsten, and of all things, opium. A submarine was considered to be a safer way to carry out these exchanges, since it could submerge underwater to avoid detection. The benefits of a submarine were generally considered to be worth the cost, namely, the fact that submarines were much smaller than surface runners, and thus could only carry a fraction of the goods. The Japanese I-52, for example, could only hold around 300 tons of freight. Despite attempts to minimize risk, these runs were considered suicide missions. By 1944, only half of the Yanagi mission's subs were actually making it to their destinations. And one of those ships that didn't complete its mission was the I-52. In March 1944, the I-52 departed the Japanese naval base of Curé Harbor for German-occupied France. It was the ship's first voyage. It would also be its last. Up next, we'll discuss the details of the I-52's final mission. Now back to the story. In March of 1944, the I-52 submarine set out from Kure Harbor in Japan on a military mission under the control of Captain Uno Kameo. We can presume that this mission was of vital importance to Japan and to the Axis powers. The intercontinental voyage would take the sub first to Singapore and then on a long journey to France. In 1944, only five other Japanese subs had undertaken this particular trade route. Of those five, three had been sunk by Allied forces during the journey. National Geographic writer Preet J. Veseland, who covered Paul Tidwell's salvage operation in the 1990s, corroborates the importance of the I-52's mission in 1944. He was able to find a letter from Gamo Santanobu, a Japanese engineer aboard the I-52, addressed to his son Sataoki before the fatal voyage. It read, quote, I, your father, have been ordered by the nation to go to a distant place in order to complete an important mission so that Japan will be able to win the war, end quote. Gamo's cryptic letter reflects the secret nature of the mission. Veselind notes there were, quote, 11 officers, 84 enlisted men, and 14 passengers, six from the Navy and eight civilians, a translator and seven engineers, including Gamo Santanobu, end quote. The engineers were hitching a ride. The plan was for them to travel back to Germany after the rendezvous to study German war technology. Of the more than 100 people aboard the I-52, none of them could tell their friends and family of their actual mission only that they would be venturing to a distant place. The Japanese had left for France with crates of tungsten, opium, caffeine, and molybdenum. Additionally, it contained what was reported as 2.2 tons of gold packed in 49 metal boxes. They reached Singapore on March 21, 1944, and loaded additional crates of tin and raw rubber. With its cargo on board, the I-52 set out on the longest trek of the journey across the Indian and Pacific Oceans to the coast of France. For most of the trek, the passengers and off-duty personnel had to lie still for hours on end in order to conserve oxygen. When a submarine submerges, it carries a finite supply of oxygen. 
For a long journey, especially one with a large crew, it was necessary to make every effort to conserve oxygen. The crew of the I-52 did not live anything close to a life of luxury. If you weren't on duty, you were waiting and resting, conserving energy. Submarines aren't well ventilated for obvious reasons. A submarine engine room could reach temperatures of 100 degrees. Add in more than 100 people's worth of body heat, and you have an uncomfortable voyage for the crew and passengers. Every breath a crew member of the I-52 took was shared by a hundred other people. Naturally, the oxygen was not circulated. It's not like they could open a window. The I-52 submarine would occasionally surface in order to resupply its oxygen reserves. But every time it did this, it opened itself up to discovery and attack from an Allied surface ship. In June of 1944, the mission became more complicated and more unlikely to succeed. The ship's comms received a message from the Japanese naval office in Germany. The Allied forces had landed in Normandy. The original plan to land on the beach of Lorient, France, would bring the I-52 dangerously close to the armada of Allied ships that were surely patrolling the English Channel. The handoff would need to happen somewhere else. The sub was redirected to Norway and was ordered to make contact with the German U-boat U-530 at specified coordinates. And remember, at this point in the war, Allied intelligence had gotten quite effective at intercepting and decoding Japanese military messages. When the I-52 responded to confirm the new orders and update the military office with its location, it wasn't long before Allied codebreakers had the sub's exact coordinates. On the evening of June 22, 1944, the I-52 surfaced in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean to find the U-530 waiting for it. The main purpose of this meetup was to provide the I-52 with the fuel it needed to make the longer journey to Norway. In addition, the U-530 handed off a radar detector and two German technicians to man it. It seemed that the meetup had gone off without a hitch, but Allied forces were already en route. After intercepting and decoding the message from the I-52, the Allied Navy had only to send out a hunter-killer squad and wait. To that purpose, the USS Bogue, under the command of Captain Aurelius Vosseler, set out from Africa on June 15th with a squad of five escorting destroyer submarines. The Subhunter squad reached the rendezvous coordinates on the evening of June 23, 1944. Both subs were still in the area. At 22.03 hours GMT, Lieutenant Commander Jesse Taylor flew an Avenger fighter jet to the coordinates reported by radar man Ed Whitlock. There, Taylor spotted the I-52 still on the surface of the water. The I-52 crew heard the jet and knew the Allies had caught up with them. Their only chance was to flee. The I-52 submerged, hoping that the engines from the U-530 would confuse the Bogue's radar systems and provide a chance for them to get away. Ironically, they were half right. The U-530 did manage to escape undetected. The I-52 was not so lucky. Taylor's fighter jet held more than just torpedoes. By 1944, 
the Allies had far superior sonar technology to the Axis forces. A sono buoy, developed as early as 1942, was able to detect underwater sounds and transmit them via radio. It didn't take long for Taylor to lock onto the sound of the I-52's propellers. Taylor then dropped an acoustic homing torpedo. It was a direct hit. Another pilot, Lieutenant William Gordon, followed up with a second torpedo. A second direct hit. The damage to the sub was catastrophic. There were no survivors among the crew. The next day, passing U.S. warships spotted the wreckage of the I-52, which was still visible due to large deposits of oil on the surface of the ocean. The ship had already sunk, but some of its cargo had separated from the hull and stayed afloat. The U.S. collected 3,000 pounds of raw rubber from its salvage. The gold, however, was not recovered. The gold would be all but forgotten as a footnote in the massive book of World War II until 50 years later when Paul Tidwell set out on his mission. It is at this point of the story that we present the first theory of the I-52 treasure. In declassified documents discovered by Paul Tidwell in the 1990s, intercepted radio messages originating from Japan state that the I-52 received, quote, 146 bars weighing two tons packed in 49 metal boxes, end quote. That gold was to be delivered to German-occupied France in exchange for German technology. There's no reason to believe the gold bars didn't exist. As these documents reveal, the U.S. knew exactly where the submarine was going and what crew were on board. It was this same intel that allowed the USS Bogue to attack and sink the submarine. Nothing has come up in the 50 years since the I-52 was sunk to indicate that this information wasn't accurate, except for the fact that we still haven't found the gold. Gold was common currency for the Axis powers during World War II. Germany in particular used gold for its international transactions, including those it conducted with Japan. Frank Holmes writes in Forbes, quote, What stood in Hitler's way was not only his country's lack of natural resources, but also the fact that many supplier nations would not accept Germany's worthless currency. They insisted instead to be paid in their own currency, some other international convertible currency, such as Swiss francs or U.S. dollars, or hard currency, end quote. Gold was just that, hard currency. It's malleable and isn't prone to corrosion. The element is rare, but not too rare, which made it the perfect currency for trade. Germany had a natural partner in Japan. Given how much the Japanese army had looted the other Asian Pacific countries in the years leading up to World War II, Japan was flush with gold and precious metals. And as noted earlier, the bars were packed in 49 metal boxes, which provided extra protection. If they survived the blasts in 1944, the gold should be in good condition today. But a lot of thought has been put into what would have been given to the Japanese Navy in exchange for the gold. After the I-52 sank, the German troops fled France, destroying the cargo meant to be delivered back to Japan. Though much of the cargo intended to be delivered on the I-52 on its return trip were destroyed by German troops, one item was not named on the list of destroyed items. The space was underlined but blank. Beside it read, Oxide 500 kilograms. 
Paul Tidwell, the head of the I-52 salvage operation in the 1990s, believed the missing word was uranium, and the mystery case was uranium oxide. During the war, uranium oxide was researched as a possible fuel for the atomic bomb. As early as 1940, Japanese scientists were looking into atomic research. Their goal was to enrich uranium, making it highly radioactive and thus useful as a component in a nuclear weapon. Though this supposed uranium could have been used for research purposes, it's unlikely the Axis powers were close to building such a bomb. In reality, although Japanese scientists were conducting research on atomic weapons, the Japanese military did not see the atomic bomb as a priority. The Atomic Heritage Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation and interpretation of the Manhattan Project and the Atomic Age and its legacy, states, quote, The major obstacle to enrichment, however, was uranium procurement. In 1945, as Germany was falling to the Allies, a U-boat loaded with uranium was dispatched to Japan. Allied naval forces captured the submarine before it arrived, but the amount of uranium being transported was not enough to make a bomb, end quote. So there was a precedent for Germany and Japan exchanging radioactive materials. However, it seems unlikely that either country had advanced enough in atomic research that there was ever enough material to create an atomic weapon. In short, the sinking of these subs didn't prevent Japan from creating an atomic bomb and changing the course of the war. Writer Preet J. Vaseland seems to agree. He writes, quote, Both the Germans and the Japanese had atomic research initiatives, but Hitler curtailed Germany's efforts because he felt the program would be too costly. The Japanese were trying to enrich uranium, but were in a very early state of research. Neither was close to building a bomb. Still, Japan wanted high-grade uranium and depended on Germany to get it. End quote. It seems possible, even likely, that the gold on the I-52 was intended to be exchanged for more uranium oxide. However, the materials would have been used for research and not for intended construction of an atom bomb. The final theory is that the I-52 could have contained a draft of a peace proposal to the Allies a whole year before the war officially ended on September 2, 1945. This is largely speculation primarily spread by Tidwell himself. In 2005, Tidwell told Guardian writer Justin McCurry that, quote, Yoshikazu Fujimura, the assistant naval attaché in Switzerland, had been in secret peace negotiations with a U.S. representative, Alan Dulles. When the sub failed to show up, he returned to Switzerland empty-handed, end quote. Author Paul M. Edwards, in his book Between the Lines of World War II, believes there may be some credit to this theory. He states, quote, For several years after the sinking of the I-52, much of the information about it was still being classified as top secret by the National Security Administration. The belief was that this effort was made in order to hide information about the secret offer, end quote. That might make sense. Imagine the outrage if it came to light that the United States knew that Japan intended to surrender over a year before the atom bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. However, there's more than a few holes in this theory. 
Edwards believes it is more likely that the information about the I-52 submarine was kept classified as to not reveal the sophisticated methods used by Allied intelligence to crack Japanese naval codes. Japan had a number of open channels of communication to its diplomatic attachés all through Europe. Even if the I-52 contained an offer of peace, the fact that no one else in the Japanese leadership made any attempt to make an agreement after the sub was sunk pretty much debunks that theory. Though there is a possibility a peace proposal to the Allies existed, we're of the belief that this peace proposal did not exist. Keep in mind, the Allies were tracking all Japanese radio signals in 1944. By the time the USS Bogue engaged in battle with the I-52, Allied intelligence knew the contents of the sub, as well as its destination and the names of everyone on board. The peace proposal theory likely only stuck because of the length of time it took for more concrete details about the I-52 to become declassified. Tidwell's comments to The Guardian about a supposed peace proposal could have been a way to get more eyes on the I-52 story. The more attention on the possible treasure of the I-52, the more likely it would be that Tidwell could generate additional funding for his attempts to recover the sub. On his own website, Tidwell wrote, quote, The I-52 project was founded on the idea of creating a project that consists of salvaging shipwrecks and developing entertainment properties. Not all shipwrecks are worthy of salvage, but the stories surrounding them may have potential as entertainment projects in the motion picture or television industries. End quote. Now, you may hear that and think that Tidwell is using the I-52 legend as a chance to potentially frame himself as a treasure hunter who sells his story to Hollywood and has some big movie made about him. And based on all we know about the man, you probably wouldn't be far off. But whatever Tidwell's intentions, his efforts to reach the I-52 seem to indicate a sincere passion. Tidwell, like many students of history just wants to answer the question that has endured for over 50 years. Is the gold really still in that sub? More on that coming next. Now, back to the story. Tidwell's quest for the sunken I-52 led him first to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. Author Richard N. Billings and former collaborator with Tidwell states, quote, Tidwell began searching for the I-52 with no preconceived notions other than a long-held belief that whenever a ship goes down with cargo of gold, it must be accounted for by someone, end quote. John Taylor, a World War II scholar, gave Tidwell a crucial tip. The messages between Japan and Germany during World War II had just been declassified by the Navy and they were all at the National Archive, available to the public. Tidwell found what he needed. The files in the archive confirmed that the I-52 carried two tons of gold. Tidwell realized that if he had discovered this information so easily, he would need to act fast. It wouldn't be long before other salvage operations came to the archive and made the same discovery. Unfortunately for Tidwell, quick was relative. It took eight years to put a proper salvage operation together. The main obstacle was funding. There was also the obstacle of the Japanese government, who had rightful claim to the I-52 submarine and its treasure. Under U.S. law, a salvager owns the rights to any wrecked ship they discover. 
But warships are a different matter, and nations have the right to lay claim to specific warships. That is to say, even if it were possible to salvage the treasure inside the I-52, Tidwell worried that the Japanese government could claim the I-52 as their property. Tidwell hoped to get ahead of this potential obstacle. To that end, he met with Japanese officials. He claimed that he was as interested in the historical significance of the ship as he was in the gold. He even offered to return any personal effects and human remains he found to Japan. Tidwell left these meetings hopeful. Though he hadn't been given explicit permission to keep the gold, if he found it, he knew he had some leverage. This was especially true given the likelihood that any gold on board the I-52 had originally been looted from China in the first place. In an interview with National Geographic for a documentary called Search for the Submarine I-52, Tidwell said, quote, A lot of people think it's about two tons of gold. Maybe at first it was. It was pretty exciting for me, too. But later, it wasn't about gold at all. It was about the story in history and uncovering something that no one else knew about, end quote. Tidwell visited the families of those that lost their lives on the I-52 mission and promised to bring up any remains that he may find. He also promised to treat the I-52 as a gravesite and so avoided any intent from the Japanese government to claim the treasure inside the submarine. Tidwell considered himself a historian first and a salvager second. He couldn't pass up on the opportunity to discover something new. However, he did not have the financial backing to salvage what was inside the I-52. Descending to 12,000 feet below the surface of the ocean isn't your average cruise. For starters, the human body cannot survive those depths without the protection of a submarine or other kind of pressurized submersible vehicle. Even the most skilled scuba divers can only reach depths of 1,000 feet. A salvage operation on this scale needed deep-sea submarines with saws and other salvage gear, making multiple trips to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. That sort of operation would take weeks and cost millions of dollars. And that's when Jim Philippone comes into the story. Jim Philippone was a wealthy lawyer from Rochester, New York. Tidwell promised Philippone a cut of the treasure and was able to convince him to invest $2 million in the mission. Philippone also spoke to National Geographic, stating, quote, My motivation for doing it was first and foremost for the excitement and history. But profit was by no means a small part of this. If Paul is right, there's $20 million worth of gold in the ocean, and I would sure like to have it, end quote. Philippone's investment would not be enough to fund the operation in its entirety, but it would be enough to fund a small recon operation with two deep submergence vehicles. These deep submergence vehicles, designated Mir 1 and 2, were able to dive to 19,000 feet, but had limited salvaging equipment. It would not be able to go inside the I-52, but both mirrors were equipped with versatile manipulator arms capable of picking up small samples. So, if any gold fell out into the debris field from the impact of the torpedoes or the descent, then the vehicle could possibly pick them up. It wouldn't be the whole $20 million worth of gold, but it might be enough to make a profit. On November 21, 1998, Tidwell loaded into the mirror and went down to the debris field, his first time in the area since they had located the submarine three years earlier. 
and National Geographic film crew was there to cover the events. Tidwell found a metal box that was brought back up to their ship. They opened it in a separate room, accompanied by bodyguards. If there was gold in the box, they didn't want other salvagers to know it was here. Unfortunately, the next day, Tidwell informed the National Geographic crew the box contained only opium. Transporting that large an amount of narcotics from international waters back to America would require the involvement of the American Drug Enforcement Administration. Tidwell wasn't hunting for opium, and he didn't want more red tape in this operation than he had already dealt with. The crew solved the problem by dumping the opium overboard. Tensions grew within the crew as Philippone grew impatient with Tidwell. Tidwell promised Philippone that they would try to saw inside the submarine to find the gold, even though he knew that would be impossible given the equipment on the mirror. Philippone wanted a return on his investment, but each time they went down to the debris field, there was no sign of gold. It was looking more and more likely Tidwell and Philippone would not be getting their gold. The conflict came to a head when Tidwell used one dive to place a flag on the hull of the I-52. Tidwell had promised the families of the victims to treat the submarine as a gravesite, and the flag was symbolic of that. Philippone, on the other hand, believed Tidwell was wasting his time and they should focus on finding the gold. On November 29th, Philippone, fed up with Tidwell's antics, took full control of the operation. The coup didn't help the mission find success. The 1998 salvage concluded. No gold had been discovered. That's not to say there isn't gold inside the I-52. As mentioned earlier, gold can survive underwater without corrosion. It's possible it's still inside the submarine. A salvage operation that big requires deep-sea submarines with saws and other salvage gear. These subs would likely need to make multiple trips to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. This sort of operation would take months to complete. The 1998 salvage operation lasted a few weeks and cost Philippone $2 million. To saw out two tons of gold, parts at a time could cost almost $20 million. That's around the value of the gold meaning that even if you could get inside the sub and find the gold, you wouldn't profit from it. Though the entire operation cost Tidwell and his business partners millions of dollars, the 1998 salvage operation was not without some merit. The two deep submergence vehicles were able to photograph and video detailed pictures of the wreckage, images that had not seen the light of day for over 50 years. Tidwell was also able to salvage a shoe seemingly the only remains of the I-52 crew. A year later, the shoe was returned to the surviving families at Curé Harbor, the very same place the I-52 began its first and final voyage. Out of respect for those Japanese sailors that died that day, Tidwell left a memorial in the wreckage of the I-52. The mechanical arms of the deep submergence vehicle placed a flag, Japan's rising sun, on the hull of the I-52 to honor the dead. Back to our three theories as to what treasures the I-52 held. The first is the two tons of gold that was to be deposited in a German bank. The second theory was, in return for the gold, the Japanese would have received material in France to build an atomic bomb. 
This is, however, unlikely, as Japanese research shows they were nowhere near completing or building a weapon of such capabilities at that point in history. The final theory is there was a peace proposal intended to be offered to the Allied forces. This is also unlikely, as intercepted messages show no record of such a proposal. We here at GAN believe the I-52 holds two tons of gold, valued at $20 million. It's very likely the I-52 would have received uranium oxide in exchange for the gold, which would have been used for nuclear weapon research. But the I-52 never reached German-occupied France, and so never received this uranium. Numerous documents confirm the gold, and the only reason it hasn't been salvaged yet is because an operation consisting of going inside the wreckage would cost millions of dollars. And so, at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, the I-52 rests containing two tons of gold that hasn't seen the light of day for over 70 years. Like the gold, the story of the I-52 has stood the test of time, its story shared by veterans of World War II and the intrepid treasure hunters seeking to gain infamy if only they were to salvage it. Perhaps in the future, submersible technology will make retrieving the gold feasible. But for now, the valuable treasure remains out of our reach, gone. Thanks for tuning in to Gone. If you want to find more episodes or any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked us how you can help Gone. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. You can also tell us your theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, on Twitter at Parcast Network or at ParCast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Mike Nevada and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 